Again, my name is Tyler. If you're just now joining us, I'm one of the pastors here at Coburg Alliance Church, and I get to preach on week three in this series called Long Story Short. Long Story Short is all about the parables of Jesus. We're focused on a lot of the things that Jesus teaches. He loves to teach through parables. And these are just these kind of lessons that Jesus is teaching in story form. And he loves teaching this way, I think, because it's accessible to a lot of people. You have to dig in deep oftentimes to understand a little bit of what's being said in these long stories short. I love that little phrase, long story short. It's how I introduce a story that I'm about to tell that's actually going to be really long. I don't, do you do that? I say, long story short, and then I proceed to tell all the details that actually just make it a very long story. Well, thankfully, Jesus doesn't really do that. He actually keeps them short enough for us. And so we're going to be in week three in this series called Long Story Shorts. And I just, I have to make an initial observation about something, and it's this. I've learned this as a dad, that kids are very observant. Have you noticed that? Kids are very observant. My three-year-old surprises me actually at times with how much she notices. She notices things. We, once, we all got in the car, we bu- we're buckled up, we're ready to go, and she told, told us that we needed the diaper bag. Yeah, we had forgotten the diaper bag. It was already in the trunk actually, but on the previous trip we'd forgotten it, and so she was being helpful by telling us that we'd forgotten the diaper bag. Maybe she just didn't like having to sit in a dirty diaper on the last go-around. I don't know. I don't know what her motivation was, but it was very helpful, right? She's observant. She notices when the little fruit and veggie pouches that we give her don't have banana in them. My daughter insists that if she's going to eat one of these little fruit and veggie pouches that it have banana. It must have banana, and now she actually asks whether or not they have banana in them before we even give them to her. She notices all sorts of things, birds in the air, Planes in the sky, all kinds of things. And she notices, actually, when my actions don't align with my words. Yeah. Parents, you know probably exactly what I mean. You start to realize how much your kids really listen to what you say and then watch to see if you're doing what you said you would do. And if you don't do what you said you would do, your kids let you know. Yeah, my daughter lets me know, either with a comment or a scream of frustration. And the truth is, we adults work sort of like that too. When someone says one thing and they do another, we've just learned social cues, actually, that tell us not to scream so loudly in public. And so we don't. But we get frustrated too. For my daughter, and for many of us, I think our actions not aligning with our words, it can be understandable and excusable, kind of depending on the situation. Sometimes we just forget what we said, or maybe we got distracted, and as long as we sort of apologize and we fix the situation, it's all good. For my daughter, the point is getting her this little fruit and veggie pouch because she's hungry. And so as long as I get that fruit and veggie pouch for her, like I said I would, she's good. Mike, can I grab that mic from you real quick? There's a little bit of feedback Thank you. Man down! We're going to have to fix that later. Uh, It's still there. 
Still there, still have that. We're having one of those mornings, I have to tell you. It's one of those mornings here at Coburg Alliance. Lots of tech things going on. Well, let me just go ahead and continue. As long as I basically get my daughter what she needs, she's happy, right? She's pretty happy. But certain decisions that people make, they're not so easily dismissed, are they? They're weightier. They hurt us in ways that are much deeper. And they cause more damage because they have more substantial consequences, especially in those moments when someone has so vigorously claimed to have a moral standard. But we discover that they don't act in line with it. When people are in maybe an official government position, they require masks in certain settings for the population, but then they're caught disregarding the very requirements they just communicated. We get frustrated by that, right? There's some frustration that we feel when people say they value life, but but they cover up the story of burying hundreds or thousands of bodies at residential schools. When people say they value fidelity in marriage and represent the church in leadership, but, but they break their marriage vows, there's something about this that just rises up in us. Because when there's this strong moral component to what people say they believe, but we discover that they haven't lived up to it, we call it hypocrisy hypocrisy. And it seems like though sometimes people aren't aware of their hypocrisy most of the time, I think most of the time people are aware. They're aware of what they said and they're aware of their actions, the actions they took that completely contradicted that message that they'd been communicating. They were just hoping that they wouldn't get caught, right? We can't stand hypocrisy. I imagine you can't stand Hypocrisy, and the truth is God can't either, especially when God's extended this overabundance of mercy and grace to somebody, and in the next moment, they don't offer even the tiniest bit of mercy and grace to someone else. And we're about to discover this truth about God in the parable of the unmerciful servant from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. So if you would open your Bibles, Matthew chapter 18, or if you have the Version Bible app, You can open to that as well, and we're going to read together. You're also going to see the verses on the screen, and Jay, I'm going to go ahead and switch. I don't know where Jay is. Jay, I'm going to go ahead and switch back to this other mic. Thanks. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. 
I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. 10,000 bags of gold. 10,000 talents in some translations. A talent was between 60 and 90 pounds. So 10,000 talents would be about 204 metric tons. And at the average wage for a day laborer, this would take about 164,000 years to pay off. Yeah, this servant's debt would have been impossible to pay off. Impossible. It was far beyond anything that he could accomplish in his life, and it's clearly this parabolic jest. It's meant to be parabolic jest for the servant to even suggest that he could pay it off, because the king knows he can't. Everybody hearing the story knows that it's impossible. There's just no way. But the king has pity. And I think what's interesting in the story is that he skips right over what I think is an obvious option, that the servant would at least attempt to pay back the debt, right? He could at least try. He could at least spend his life trying to pay back even a little bit of this debt. But the king cancels the debt outright and lets the servant go free. This king went from this demanding judge to a merciful manager in a moment. And the result is this freedom for the servant and for his entire family. We have a lot we can actually unpack in this parable. As you can imagine, I think Jesus tells this parable for a couple reasons. The first of which is to teach the impossibility of paying back our debt to God and the immense mercy of the God who forgives our debt when we ask. I think it's good for you to hear. I know it's good for me to hear. Whether you're hearing this for the very first time or you've heard it a million times because you've been around the church block again and again, you owe God more than you could ever repay. You owe God more than you could ever repay because of your sin. And without his mercy, you wouldn't receive the forgiveness that leads to new life. That's true. Everyone is the servant in the first part of this parable. All of us. You're the servant in the first part of this parable. The servant, the good news is, was given a new lease on life. He went from a lifetime in prison to absolute freedom in a moment. For whatever reason, he owed this king an immense debt. And for us, that debt we owe to God, it starts to accrue immediately when we sin the very first time. But the gospel, the good news came to the servant the moment he asked for patience. And he received far more than what he asked for. He received a new life. He received a fully canceled debt, and you and I, we receive that the same moment we ask for God's mercy. God's judgment is real because sin is real. That servant's debt was real, but God's mercy in a moment of repentance, it's just as real. And you and I are meant in this parable to come alongside this servant. We're meant to feel alongside this servant, this moment of absolute relief. I've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. The king had mercy. You almost find yourself sighing at this point. I don't know if you do. I sure do. 
And if you're the type to read little segments of Scripture here and there, you, you might want this parable to end right here, right? You want this parable to end. You like where it's stopping. It would tie up really nicely another story of mercy and forgiveness, and everybody goes home happy, but the parable keeps on going. And I sort of hate that it keeps on going because I liked this servant, right? I liked him up to this point. I was happy for him. I was happy for his family, and then all of a sudden, I just don't like him so much. I, I don't just dislike this guy. I'm actually really angry at this guy, right? His actions, they define hypocrisy. He immediately leaves. The moment he's freed from being sold by the king to repay this debt, and he chokes his fellow servant for a debt that's so small it's laughable. A hundred silver coins. It's nothing. And maybe you notice this. The other servant in the story uses almost the exact same language that this forgiven servant uses. Be patient with me and I'll pay it back. In the very moment we'd hope and expect that the king's servant would forgive the debt, he acts hypocritically tosses the other guy in prison, and the king catches wind of what happens. Then the master called the servant, and you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. The king expected that the forgiven would then forgive. You are forgiven, therefore forgive. Have mercy. Klein Snodgrass, poor guy, with a last name like that, draws out the second key point when he writes this. The kingdom comes with limitless grace in the midst of an evil world. That's part one of our parable. But with it comes limitless demand. Nowhere is that more obvious than in this parable that God acts and his people are expected to act in accordance with his actions and his character. You get limitless grace and mercy and forgiveness from God. You can absolutely count on that. We all can. But if God is giving you limitless grace and mercy and forgiveness, then he just expects you to give the same. It's not optional. It's intimately tied to the same mercy that you've received from God himself, and Klein highlights it this way. English translations often lose the force of verse 33, for the text has, is it not necessary for you to also show mercy to your fellow servant as I have shown mercy to you. Mercy is a requirement for disciples of the kingdom. If you've received God's mercy, you must be merciful. And if that's true, then how do we get there? Because Tyler, the extent to which I've been harmed, it's far beyond the mercy that I feel I can give. The debt that my offender owes me, it can't be repaid. I'm Ukrainian. My spouse of 20 years cheated on me. I lost everything because of corruption. These, these debts in life that I've accrued, they can't be repaid. I want to spend the rest of our time exploring this. Because I actually think that the relationship between mercy and trust and judgment and accountability is really complex. The point of the parable is simple. But the outworking of that point, it's really complex. But before I do, I want to address one key point. It's one aspect of the parable that I think really has to be treated 
because some of you might be distracted by it. I know when I listen, when someone's preaching, I get distracted by these little things that I read. And so, uh, so let me take you to the torture scene. Yeah, the torture scene that we find at the end, and I want to answer this quickly. We don't want to push parables beyond their limits. There are limits in parables. This, I think, is hyperbole that Jesus is using. He uses hyperbole when, he, when he's teaching people, essentially. He's shocking them into the truth. He wants to shock you into the truth. It's better for you, for example, earlier in Matthew, to cut off your hand or gouge out your eye and enter the kingdom maimed than it is to enter hell with all your appendages. And in our parable for today, Jesus uses shocking hyperbole meant to draw you to this truth of how seriously God treats a lack of mercy. It's serious. So how do you get there? How do you get to a place in life where you're merciful toward those who owe you a debt? Whatever kind of debt there is. I don't know if there's a step-by-step answer to this question. Because people in their circumstances, they just tend to be more complex than that. But I do think understanding the nature of mercy is going to help us get a little closer to being merciful ourselves. First, God is the source of mercy. And any attempt to offer mercy without first receiving mercy, it's likely going to end in futility. The whole point of the parable, the whole point of this parable, is that the servant first received the forgiveness of a debt that he couldn't repay. And this is everybody's story. And it's a story that has to first be understood. If you find yourself struggling to offer mercy, struggling to forgive, one option for receiving the power to forgive might be a deeper understanding of God's mercy for you. There are many stories in Scripture of God's mercy, but the most central story is that of Christ's bloody and violent and painful death on the cross so that you could have new life. It's the central story. Strange as it might sound, especially if you're new to church or if you're new to the faith, Christ on the cross is the central place that we go as Christians for understanding mercy and grace and love and forgiveness. And it's central for this parable because Christ was actually innocent. He wasn't even that servant. Fully undeserving of the death that he received, but he did it to repay God for actually the debt that you accrued. So to gain the power needed to give mercy and offer forgiveness to those who owe us a debt, it requires a deep connection with this story, a deep connection to the cross, with the historical reality of Christ's death on the cross. So go to God in moments of prayer. Ask him to open your eyes to that story because the immense mercy and the immense forgiveness that you receive from God himself, that's actually going to be the source of offering mercy to someone else. Second, mercy is a process or a process if you're Canadian. You might not get that from this parable. You might not get that. But that's because parables, they're not meant to be entire theologies. They're not meant to answer every question. They're meant to be these illustrations. Again, we don't want to push parables beyond their meaning. If you read this parable as it is, it sort of makes you feel like the moment you receive mercy from God is the very moment that you're supposed to fully grasp offering mercy to others. And that might be the case for you. That might be the case. But it might not. Some things in the Christian life, they just take time. 
And if you aren't offering forgiveness and mercy from the heart immediately, it's not something to really fret about. Just continue in this process of asking God to open you up to his mercy. Ask him to reveal what it means to give mercy in whatever situation you're in. Third, mercy doesn't disregard evil. The kingdom, this is Klein again, the kingdom cannot be present if evil is not being named and defeated. If there's no judgment, salvation's not needed. Mercy actually assumes evil. Something has happened which creates this debt. It requires mercy and it requires forgiveness. Naming a wrongdoing, it's actually part of this process of giving mercy. Offering mercy, it's not saying the wrongdoing didn't happen. That it didn't hurt. It isn't softening the wrongdoing to make it less so, less painful. It's fully affirming the extent to which this wrongdoing was truly wrong. And in the face of that, in the face of the fullness of wrongdoing, it's offering mercy. That's what the king did. That's what God does. And that's what we're meant to do in the end. To name the debt, offer the mercy, because it's only then that the full extent of mercy is understood. The greater the debt, the deeper the mercy. Fourth, mercy and forgiveness, they don't necessarily mean the restoration of trust. To offer somebody mercy, it doesn't require immediately trusting them again. The king releases the debt owed to him and lets the guy go. And if I'm that king, I'm probably not employing that servant again, right? He's not coming back into my employ. I don't trust him, not yet. I'm not demanding repayment, but I'm not trusting him right away either. I might be able to regain trust eventually, but it's not probably happening anytime soon. Any parent of a high school student gets this. Look, I've been that student. I did a thing or two. Believe it or not. Believe it or not, Patty, I did a thing or two in my day to break my parents' trust when I was in high school. And though my parents were at times merciful, they didn't necessarily trust me right away, and that was the right answer. It wasn't smart to trust me right away. I had to steadily build it back with small acts of responsibility. And the reality in some things, even with mercy extended fully, is that some things just cut too deep. For trust to be restored right away. Think of Ukraine. Think of marital infidelity. You can likely think of plenty of other situations. The point isn't that it's impossible for trust to be regained. I do think God restores even in the worst situations, but the nature of human brokenness means it's actually wise to take time to regain trust. Fifth, this parable isn't meant to be a weapon. This isn't meant to be a weapon. It's not meant for manipulation. Maybe you know what I mean here. When someone says, I know what I did was wrong, but aren't you supposed to be merciful? Right? You see the manipulation, the, the, the subtle manipulation happening when someone tries to use a parable or a point in that way. When someone doesn't acknowledge really deeply, truly their own wrongdoing, they, they don't accept their responsibility, they they don't ex- ask for mercy and forgiveness. Instead, they use the necessity of mercy to try to force you to live mercifully. The parable's not meant to be a weapon. It's meant to fuel those who have received God's mercy. It's meant to fuel them toward being merciful toward others. Sixth, mercy is limitless. We've got to go back to this. 
Mercy is limitless. Just before the parable, Peter actually asked Jesus how many times he should forgive. And Peter offered the number seven. Peter offering the number seven was actually for more than the standard for Jews. For Jews, it was often the standard to forgive three times, and on the fourth, you didn't really have to. You weren't required to forgive somebody. So Peter Peter probably thought he was kind of doing well for himself by suggesting seven. I'm going above and beyond, right? And Jesus blows Peter out of the water. He says, no, 77 times. The idea is that forgiveness should be offered in a way that is as countless as the very debt owed. And if God is limited in his forgiveness toward us, then maybe we could be limited in our forgiveness toward others, but thankfully he's not. And so neither do we. Mercy's limitless. And yet mercy's condition is repentance. This might seem sort of odd, but in both cases in the parable, the servants, they ask for mercy. There's this moment, this moment of asking for mercy. They express this measure of desperation as they beg for patience. And for the king, that was the turning point in his approach. The difference and the key point in the parable is the approach of the one who's in a position of power toward the one who owed that person a debt. But the condition in both actually remain the same. Both servants asked for mercy. Now, you can still be merciful to someone who hasn't asked for it. God's still merciful, actually, in many ways to those who've yet to ask for mercy. He's hopeful that they're going to repent. He's immensely patient with people. So he's, he's actually merciful ahead of time, and he's merciful afterward. But the point is, to be discerning in the moments when someone hasn't asked, in the moments when someone obstinately refuses to, to ask for forgiveness or to accept responsibility for their actions. Eighth and finally, mercy is both heart and action. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The last verse of the parable. This might be the hardest bit of the whole teaching. I think it is. The heart is the center of your being. It's the center of who you are. And Jesus is not calling you to only externally offer mercy, but for mercy to flow from the center of who you are. Jesus teaches us to have this attitude of mercy toward our debtors, to forgive completely, to forgive fully. And I think he does this because forgiving someone 77 times without a heart that's been transformed to treat someone mercifully, is going to break you. Because it means that someone's accrued a debt 77 times, and to forgive someone 77 times just externally, canceling the debt but harboring bitterness and hate, it's going to leave you in shambles. Mercy is both heart and action, and I think this instruction is given for both the debtor and for the indebted, for you and the one who owes you. I want you to hear something this morning as I start to close. I want you to hear something really clearly when it comes to mercy, when it comes to this parable in particular. I don't know your situation. And I can't pretend to know how difficult it might be for you to extend mercy. I only know the difficulties that I've had at times in my own life to extend mercy. And I think what I've had to extend mercy for is probably vastly underwhelming compared to those that I've counseled or 
or life circumstances from people that I know well or even situations that I can imagine. But I think it's also inescapable that Jesus has called us to extend mercy and forgiveness. And so this morning, my hope is that you've been able to meet God as he calls you to extend mercy in whatever situation you find yourself in. It's complex. And please also don't hear me say that extending mercy means something like exposing yourself again and again and again to ongoing abuse or mistreatment. If that's you and if you're hearing this and you're wondering how mercy is supposed to mean something, how it's supposed to be exercised in my situation, then please reach out separately because it is complex. You can reach out to me. You can reach out to Pastor Daryl or Pastor Abby, and if we can't help you directly, we'll get you connected to somebody who can. All that said, God is calling you to multiply mercy. Multiply mercy. He's given you limitless mercy, and he asks you to multiply that mercy by doing the same for others. Worship team, you can come on up, start getting settled. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. And communion really is all about remembering this moment of pure mercy, of remembering Christ on the cross. And so as we take communion together, I want to invite you to do two things. First, to reflect on the first part of this parable. Maybe you need to hear of God's mercy toward you. Maybe you need to receive that in a new way today. Maybe you need to receive it for the first time. The gospel is about you receiving the mercy and the forgiveness of God and getting the new life that results from it. And the second thing is to reflect on the second part of the parable. You've received mercy. Are you then extending mercy? Maybe it's something subtle. Maybe you're being petty towards someone for something that they've done. Maybe something they're not even aware that they did. And you're holding this grudge that can be released by offering mercy. Let's pray together, and then we're going to take communion. God, thank you. Thanks for these moments. Thanks for this long story short. Jesus, you've given us actually what I think is both a beautiful and a deep and a life-changing parable, but a challenging parable. Because the limitless grace that you give us is meant to be given to others. That mercy that we receive is meant to be extended. Help us to multiply mercy. And as we spend these moments remembering your death on the cross, I just pray that that would become central in our hearts. That the death of Jesus would be the source of mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Once a month, As a church, we observe together what's called communion. And it's Jesus Christ himself, actually, who instructed us to observe this practice. It's a way of remembering his death on the cross, the most central act of mercy in history. And if you follow Jesus, we'd encourage you to join in communion by receiving the bread and the cup. If you don't yet follow Jesus, receive the new life that Jesus offers through his sacrifice on the cross. Receive his mercy. If you're here in person, you're going to have the elements with you, and if you have a non-gluten-free one, you're going to see this little piece on top. 
Make sure you pull that little top piece back and you're going to find the bread. It's not really bread. Just warning you, it's not really bread. And then we're going to take that together and afterward you're going to see another little piece on top and you're going to peel that back and you're going to find the juice. If you're gluten-free, we treat you better. You just have this and you have just one. It's a little bit easier. We're going to start with the bread which represents the body of Jesus, which is broken for us. Christ suffered to the point of death. It calls us to remember these moments, important as they are to our salvation. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next, we'll take the cup. And the cup represents the blood that was poured out for us on the cross. Christ's life was given as a covering, as a sacrifice so that we could have eternal life. And in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for this moment again. We thank you that we can gather as a church community here in Coburg and that we can proclaim your death until you come again because it's your death that gives us the chance to both experience mercy and give it. My hope and my prayer is that Coburg Alliance Church, that everyone who's here would be known in our community as being people who give mercy and that they'd wonder why it is that we so readily give mercy or that we give mercy in situations that seem impossible. Father, help us to receive your mercy so we can give it more readily. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.